So last week, uh, we started our series called Foundations, um, and so over the course of this semester, we are going to look at a number of different core biblical principles to help you build and establish a strong foundation of faith. And like I mentioned a little bit last week, essentially this semester is going to be kind of like a mini theology course. We're going to be covering a lot of theology this semester, and unfortunately it does not count for college credit, so you can't try to use that on your applications or anything. But you're going to learn a lot. That's my goal. And so maybe last week when you heard me use this word theology, maybe you're like, what is he talking about? So I want to start off by asking this question, and I want to hear what you think. What is theology? When you hear that word, theology, what comes to your mind? How would you define theology? How would you describe theology? I mean, just like first thought, right off the top of your head, I say the word theology. What comes to your brain? Let me, let me hear. Yeah, Gabby? Okay, studying God in the Bible. Good. What else? When I say the word theology, what do you guys think of? Yeah, Jason? Okay, like studying God, his beliefs. Does anybody picture like a bunch of like old guys with long beards like, theology, anything? No, that's what I think sometimes. Any other thoughts? When you hear the word theology, Yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe a lot of people who have been to like Bible college or seminary have to take theology classes, right? Yeah, good, okay. So those are some pretty good definitions. Well, so the word theology comes from two Greek words that combined basically mean the study of God. So to define theology is essentially the study of God. In other words, what do you believe about God? That's basically what theology is. What do you believe about God? And so you might be thinking, well, you know, like I don't really have a theology. I've never studied theology. I'm not really theological. That's not really, that's not really my thing. But what we don't realize is all of us in this room have a theology. Each and every one of you, whether you realize it or not, you have a theology. You have a belief system about who God is, and whether or not you believe in God or you don't believe in God, you have a theology, because theology is the study of God, or basically what you believe, and all of you have beliefs of some sort, so that means you have a theology. You have a theology. So the next question I want to ask you is, do you think studying theology is important? I want you to think about that for a second. Knowing that's how we would define theology, is theology important? Is theology important? Yeah. Yeah, nice. Awesome. Great, great answer. Any other thoughts? Is theology important? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, good, Jason. Yeah, right? And so if theology is basically studying God, studying the Bible, and if many of you, or if not all of you, have a desire to study God and study the Bible, guess what? That's theology. And so we oftentimes think theology is for like really smart people or adults or whatever, but theology is for all of us. And so I'm hoping this semester you'll see why studying theology is important. And actually, it can be a lot of fun to study theology because theology doesn't have to be boring because theology is the study of the God of the universe. I mean, trying to study and learn and somewhat comprehend creator God, God of the entire universe, I mean, that sounds a little fun to me, right? Trying to learn about this God of the universe. But you must have a clear understanding of your theology. Because what your theology is will shape and influence how you see everything. Depending on what your theology is, how you see the world, how you believe what the Bible says, your theology will shape and influence everything. Because what you believe about God and what you believe about the Bible will influence every aspect of your life. Your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, your struggles, cultural issues, friends, relationships, school, sports. There is no inch of your life that is not impacted by your theology. There's no part of your life where your theology doesn't influence. Because what you believe about God and the Bible influences every area of your life. It's not just, oh, this is my theology, and then over here is the rest of my life. Because what you believe about God and his word influences every area. And in fact, R.C. Sproul, a theologian, he says, to be a Christian is to be a theologian. To be a follower of Jesus means you're a theologian. And so all of you here, for those who desire to follow Jesus, guess what? You are a theologian. That's who you are. And so we all have a theology, but the next question that comes is, is it a biblical theology? Meaning, do you believe, or what, what you believe, does it align with what the Bible says? Because we all have a theology, the question is, is it a biblical theology? Meaning, does what you believe align with what the Bible teaches? And so to study and have a biblical theology, you know what that involves? Studying the Bible, right? I know I'm getting really deep here right off the bat. But if you want a biblical theology, that involves time in studying the Bible, studying God's Word. And so... Before we start to build a theology centered in God's word, if you want to say, okay, I want to develop a biblical theology, if you want to study the Bible, and if we want to study the Bible here at TNT and throughout the course of this semester, we need to have an understanding that the Bible is where we get our theology from. Because if you want to study the Bible, you have to have an understanding that this is where we get our theology from. From. 
Because a lot of people think, oh, the Bible is a source of knowledge. It's a source of theology. I would argue that the Bible is the source of theology. Because if you don't believe the Bible is true and trustworthy, then everything else that we're going to talk about the rest of the semester is probably going to be a little difficult for you to understand. Because everything is centered on God's word. This is our foundation. Because everything comes down to what the Bible says, whether you believe it or not. And so before we can even get into theology and all these different topics this semester, tonight I want to look at the question, can we trust the Bible? Because we can look at Bible passages about what it teaches, but if you don't really trust the Bible, then there's probably not a whole lot of point in studying the rest of what we're going to talk about this semester. And so I want you to take a moment and think about this. Be honest with yourself. If you were asked this question, can you trust the Bible, how would you respond? Can you trust the Bible? Be honest. Like, we're here to learn. We're here to talk and have conversations. Can you trust the Bible and why? Yeah, Jason? Okay. Yeah, this book has been around forever. If it was really fake, why is it still around, <laughs> right, in a, in a sense? Yeah, great, yeah. Okay, nice, all right, I like it. Elders to the max, I'm like a jazz dude. Yeah, here. Okay, yeah, it's God's word. Anything else? Yeah. Okay? Kind of tried and true, proven to be true. Okay. Well, there's a lot that can be discussed about how we answer this question. You can literally take classes on classes on this one topic. So I'm going to condense like an entire college class in like 25 minutes. Okay? So buckle up. Here we go. And so what we're going to do tonight is going to be a very, very brief overview. It's no way all-inclusive, like everything that can be talked about. But tonight, I want to provide for you a few reasons why we can trust the Bible. Okay, if you're with me, give me a thumbs up. Good? Okay, all right. So we're going to look at five reasons, okay? Reason number one, documentation, okay? And what do I mean by that? Well, let me start out with this. How many of you have ever learned or read anything in school by a guy named Plato or Aristotle? Did you guys ever read any of that in school? Not Aeropostle, Plato, not Plato's Closet, Aeropostle, okay? Maybe you have heard about him or read about either of those in school. Well, these guys, these are famous ancient writers that have been studied for generations all over the world. But if you were to take copies of what these guys have written, you would have less than 60 copies total. And if you were to take all of those copies and kind of place them on a table and look at all of them, the accuracy rate of all of those being the same is going to be honestly pretty low. And in comparison, if you were to take all of the copies of the New Testament or the second half of the Bible, 
if you were to take all the copies of the second half of the Bible, the New Testament alone, you would have nearly 6,000 copies in Greek alone, 19,000 in other languages. And if you were to take nearly those 6,000 copies of the New Testament alone and line them all up, the accuracy of each of them being the exact same is 99.5%. And that 0.5% is mainly punctuation, like, okay, there was a comma here and a period here. So it's mainly punctuation or a translation or a copy might say love or great love. So that 0.5% is pretty much punctuation or maybe some adjectives or something like that, but nothing that ever really changes the meaning of it. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, that's the New Testament. What about like the other half of the Bible? Well, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever heard of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls? Anybody? Okay, a few people. All right. Well, back in 1947, that's when Sam was born, I think. Back in 19... Oh, just kidding. I saw you and I had to just say it. Back in 1947, there was a village outside of Jerusalem and there were shepherds who were just kind of hanging out. Their sheep got away and these shepherds were going through these mountains area and they tried to wander into these caves and they went in these caves and they found all of these really old clay pots. And so they're like, what is going on here? Well, they opened these clay pots and they found tens of thousands of scroll fragments And when they looked at those, they realized that these were manuscripts of nearly every book of the Bible. And all of these manuscripts that they found in these scrolls in 1947, so like only like 100, less than 100 years ago, when they found these scrolls, they realized that they had nearly every book of the Bible and they were written nearly 1,000 years earlier than any of our current biblical manuscripts. What that means is, in 1947, they found copies of the New Testament, and what they found in there were a thousand years older than the oldest copies that they already had. And what's amazing is that these scrolls have been hidden, and scrolls I mean like long pieces of paper rolled up, these scrolls had been hidden for 2,000 years. And when they translated those and they looked at those, the copies were the exact same as the Bible that you have in front of us. The exact same. So what you have in your hand is what they found in these clay pots, in these caves, in the middle of Israel, and they've been there for 2,000 years. And to me, that is wild. And so we have so many copies of original writings, and the accuracy is perfect. And in fact, you can actually see these scrolls. So this is a museum in Israel, and this is actually a picture that I took myself when I was there last spring. This is a museum, and it's supposed to look like the top of a clay pot, like a lid. And in, uh, in this museum are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I would have taken pictures of those scrolls, but it's illegal. So I didn't want to like be put in jail. So that's the closest thing I could get. But in there, if you're to even Google them, you can see pictures and videos of them online. And so number one, documentation, meaning we have tons and tons of copies that have been proven for generations. So number two is a big word, archaeological findings. Everyone say archaeological. Archaeological. Okay, 
Now, what do I mean when I say archaeology? Okay, what is archaeology? Okay, who can tell me what archaeology? Yeah? Okay, they dig and find old stuff. Now, that sounds like a fun job when you say it like that, honestly. So archaeology is the study of human history through excavation and analyzing artifacts. So they basically dig and find old stuff and figure out what it is. That's basically what it is. It's like a giant sandbox. That's basically what they're doing. And so many, many people who are not Christians, they have found artifacts throughout generations that prove what we read in the Bible. And so let me go through a couple of those. Buildings, for example. So a lot of these pictures are actually ones that I took in Israel. And so right here, let me kind of stand out of the way. Right here, do you see kind of this like rock foundation right here? And you're like, what am I looking at here? Well, this is actually the foundation of David's palace. So like when you read about David and Goliath, like you know the whole like, take that Goliath! King David, that guy, this is the foundation of his house. So I could literally reach my hand through there and touch stones that were a part of the bottom of where David lived, like an actual place. So you can go and see places and touch with your hands places that we read about in God's word. And so the next one, um, there are these little seals, they're called bulas. Everyone say bula. Bula, bula, bula. All right. And these bulas These were little clay wax seals that they would use to kind of like seal documents. You know, today, if you ever have to like mail a letter, you have to like, you know, or whatever and seal it. Well, back then they didn't have that. So they would take like little pieces of clay and they would press it in on the outside of scrolls and envelopes and they would have little seals or like markers that would tell people this is from David. This is like an official document from David or from Saul or whomever. And they've actually found those seals from letters and scrolls all the way back through David, Solomon, Jeremiah. Like, you can go and actually look at these clay seals. They have those markers on them from those people who are real people. Like, you don't have to believe in the Bible to go and see these in real life from real people. Okay, there's also places, okay? So I think the next picture here, this is in Gedi. And again, um, if you are familiar with the story of David, when you read his story, there are um, times when David has to run and escape for his life. So early on in his life, Saul the king was trying to kill David. And you read about David running for his life. And there's that one story where David is in the cave and he's hiding and Saul goes in and David has the opportunity to kill him, but he doesn't. Well, in Gedi is this area, and you can kind of maybe see little caves all over the place, where this area is in the middle of the desert, middle of nowhere. But this is a legitimate place that has been around for centuries, generations, and David was in these places. In fact, I think the next picture, there's actually fountains that are known to be like fountains of David, meaning there are a few like spring waterfall areas where there's no doubt that David actually wrote psalms in these places. And so I put this picture here, again, like we took some of these. And so Psalm 63, 1 says, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul 
thirsts for you. And so to be in the middle of the desert, in the middle of Israel, and all you see is this little tiny area that's just water and lush and safety. And to think about David writing psalms in these places, real places that you can go to. Okay, another area is Jericho, this old city, if you, again, are familiar with the Bible at all, you read um, about the story of Jericho where they're trying to take over Jericho and they go around the walls going, and then the walls come down. Okay, that's my real short version of it. Well, you can actually go and see ruins of these walls. And so this picture is actually um, from a journal, and some of these people in, this, in these other pictures, they're not Christians. Like, they're not believers. And they actually went to Jericho and did study and research. And long story short, they found that much of the old city walls, and you can actually see he's pointing to old bricks that were part of that city wall, they actually, in their research in archaeological things, determined, and these are legal documents, they determined that there was some sort of earthquake or supernatural phenomenon that caused all of these walls to fall in. Not we don't know what happened. Somebody just kind of, you know, forgot to put a stone in place and it all fell down, you know. But actually, something supernatural happened. And if you were to read Joshua 6 about this story, uh, you might remember that Rahab helped the Israelite spies. And so because she helped them, she was freed. She wasn't killed in this battle. Well, there are actual places, and this is a spot where the wall was still intact. And so all the descriptions that the Bible talks about are legitimate archaeological findings. And so people who don't believe in the Bible go to these places and go, huh, it actually happened, just like it said. That's science, okay? And so a couple other ones, people, right? Archaeological, so people. The next picture, I think, so you're probably wondering, what is this, a flying saucer or something? But this right here is actually believed to be the house that Peter lived in, the Apostle Peter. So one of the disciples, this was Peter's house. Like Jesus slept in one of these rooms over here. Peter and Jesus probably hung out and were, you know, chopping it up, hanging out. And you can actually go to Peter's house. And you can go to the same area, I think the next picture is Capernaum, like a real town that has been around for generations that Jesus lived and taught in. And you can actually go to an old temple there that Jesus taught in. You can stand in the places where Jesus physically taught. And so one of the articles I read said this, everyone loves a good conspiracy theory, but this one is too far out in left field to take seriously. The idea that all of this is made up, everyone loves a good conspiracy, right? But this is just, it doesn't make sense. And I could keep going with examples and examples, but again, here are just a few. People, places, buildings, all that stuff. Okay. All right, so that was the second one. Number three, inspiration. That's the third reason. Okay, hope I don't trigger any of you when I say this or ask this. How many of you have ever done a group project. Anybody? Okay. All right. Now, let, let, me, let me ask you this. How many of you love group projects? Anybody? 
Okay, okay, brave soul. Okay, how many of you are like, no way group projects are the worst? Okay, ooh, okay, a lot of people. All right. Personally, I don't like group projects. I, I don't think they're, they're not a lot of fun. Why? Because there are mainly two opinions on them. You don't like them because typically you end up being the one who, what, does all the work? Or maybe you're the person who loves them because... Somebody else does all the work, right? <laughs> so you either love them or you hate them, depending on who you are. And personally, I don't like them because I was one of those people who I'd always end up doing like most of the work. Because it would take so much longer to do a group project than if you just do it yourself, right? The struggle. Well, I remember there was one group project from high school. Um, we had a group project, and we had like a month to finish this project. It took us three weeks to decide on what our topic was. We had four weeks to do this project. It took us three weeks to come to an agreement on what our topic was. And the only reason we finally agreed was because two of us were like, it's due next week, whatever, let's just do it and get it over with. But we had so many like intense conversations of, we should do this, we should do that. And three weeks later, we finally agreed, but it wasn't because that's actually what we wanted. And I'm pretty sure we got like a D on it, so... But we got through. And so group projects, because they can be hard, because the more people you involve, the harder it is to get work done, right? The more people who participate in a group project, it ends up becoming a lot harder, because you're trying to agree on what you should do, your topic, who's doing what, all of these things. And so if a group project with a few people in school is that hard to put together, then I think, how does one logically explain how we have the Bible if not from a miracle of God putting it together? And let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bible there, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, we have some extra in the back. Raise your hand, we can get you one. So turn to 2 Timothy. If you're not sure, find 1 Timothy and you're right there. Gets a laugh like 10% of the time. All right. If you found 3 Timothy, you got, you got a bad Bible, okay? Thanks, Wood. Appreciate it. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you need a hand finding it, ask a friend. Look in the front of the Bible, the index. We'll make sure you find it, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Would anyone like to read that for us? Anyone want to read that for us? Nice and loud. Anybody? Gabby. Thanks, Gabby. Whenever you're ready. All right. Thank you. So 2 Timothy says that the Bible, Scripture, is breathed out. And depending on what translation of the Bible you have, you might have inspired, okay? But the Bible is breathed out. It's inspired by God. The Bible is literally the breath of God, meaning Scripture comes from God Himself. Scripture is breathed out. And so to say the Bible is inspired means this. And I'm going to give you a, a deeper definition, but I believe that you can track with me here, okay? This is what inspiration means. 
God superintended human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error God's revelation to man. So in other words, God uses people to write this book, but God is the true author. Why? Because the Bible is literally breathed out by God. And God uses, and he used people using their own individual personalities, God breathed out his word without error. And so God's word is God revealed. If you ever want to know, okay, what is God like? Who is he like? What does he do? Read God's word. And so maybe you're like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean God used people to put together the Bible? Well, God delivered his word through human authors, and they recorded his exact words that were spoken to them. And that doesn't mean that the people who wrote the Bible were robots. They weren't like, I will do exactly what God says. That's not here at all what's happening. But God used their own individual personalities to accomplish this work. And so God worked through these individuals to inspire the very words that he intended to give to his people. So if you read the Bible, if you read a book by the Apostle Paul and read a book by Luke or Peter, you're going to notice, hey, they kind of write things a little differently. That's because God used them and how he created them to be to give us his word. And so different personalities doesn't mean different messages. And so let me give you an example. This is a pretend fake example, okay? I don't want to be hearing flack about this later, okay? So just put on your imagination caps here for a second. Imagine tonight in the snack shop there were free donuts. Imagine, imagine, imagine there were free donuts, right? Now, if I were to give you that news, that if there were, if I had to give you that news, you guys probably know me somewhat well enough I would probably be like, free donuts, yeah! I'd probably come in and, yeah, yeah, free donuts, yeah, yeah, yeah. However, if my wife Laura was instructed to give you the news that there was free donuts, she might do something like this. <clears throat> Hi, um, there are free donuts available in the, in the cafe, so we'd like to have you have those. There's sugar, there's cream-filled, there's sprinkled, there's... You can have some. Okay? Two different people. I'm going, free donuts! And she's like, guys, there's some donuts available for you. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two different... Well, I'm so glad she wasn't here to see that. <laughs> I guess she can hear it. I don't know. <laughs> Two different personalities. But what was the message? Free donuts. Again, sorry, they're not free donuts. You can use your imagination. They're fake, just like the sugar in them. Okay. Again, same message, different people and personalities. That's the idea here. God uses them. And so when I think about how the Bible was woven together, I can't help but think, man, it must be God who brought this together. Because apart from the working of God, how would putting a book like the Bible be even possible? Because I want you to think about this. 
The Bible must be inspired and formed by God because there's 66 books written by 40 authors spanning three different continents over the course of nearly 2,000 years, and the authors ranged from priests to tax collectors to shepherds to fishermen and doctors. Imagine all of them trying to do a group project. That would be something very interesting. But you know what? God used all of these people, all of these books, all of these years. But there's unity. One message. Why? Because it was God at work. God at work. Okay? All right, reason number four. The life of Jesus. And now perhaps you know people, maybe you even have some friends at school who might say, well, Jesus, he isn't real. Jesus is fake. Jesus is, you know, like the tooth fairy. Oh, sorry, I hope I didn't. Jesus is not a real person. Maybe you've heard this before. But when someone says that Jesus was not a real person, I respond with, you might want to do just a little more homework. Because the fact that Jesus was a real historical person is clearly documented. There are tons of documents from all over the place, from all kinds of people, that proved that Jesus was a real person from eyewitnesses. And so there's a few. A couple of them, there's this uh, Roman historian, his name is Tacitus, sounds like a nice guy. He has a whole commentary on describing Christ. Josephus, another great guy, he was an historian. He has tons and tons of publications that talk about Jesus. And while these guys weren't followers of Jesus, they heard the eyewitness accounts. They were there. They heard the news. They saw what was happening. And there are lots of other people. And so historically speaking, Jesus was a real person. The question that people wrestle with, though, is, is he the Messiah? But there's no question that he was a real person. And so when I was in Israel, I think I might have another picture. When I was in Israel, I talked to a lot of different people, atheists, Jews, Muslims, all kinds of people who believed all kinds of things. But what I noticed, though, this was me in a little coffee shop that I met, and I talked to this guy for like two hours. He was awesome. But what I found is that when I talked to all kinds of people from all walks of life, essentially everyone that I talked to acknowledged that Jesus was a real person. When you go over to the Middle East, people don't really question, is Jesus real? There's tons of evidence that Jesus was actually a real person. Again, the question that people debate is, is he the Messiah? But to have someone say, Jesus is not a real person, they need to do a little bit more homework. And so I think here in America, we hear this, but that's not true. And so if you were to study, you'd actually see a ton of evidence that Jesus was, in fact, a real person. And because of God's word, we believe that he is our Messiah. He's the Savior. So number five, just the fifth reason, this, again, this isn't an all-inclusive list, but number five, the Bible's impact. We kind of mentioned that earlier. Because think about this. If the Bible was truly fake news, why is this book the most influential book in history? So I want to share a couple statements with you. The Bible was the first book ever to put in the printing press. The Bible is the most quoted book of all time. It's the bestseller of all time. It's the most translated work in history. 
No other book has been read, discussed, and interpreted as often, and no other book has even had a comparable impact on the arts. More people have died torturous deaths simply trying to gain access to this book, and many surveys, scholars, historians all agree that the Bible is the most influential book in history. The Bible has an incredible impact. And so for this book, if it were to be fake, then why has it had such a big impact on our entire world? And why does it still impact people's lives still today? Because when you truly, when people truly read the Bible, lives are changed. And a few, I put up a few examples of some people who had changed lives. C.S. Lewis, he was an atheist he was a deep thinker. He became a follower of Jesus and became one of the world's leading Christian apologists. John Newton, he was a former slave shipmaster who became a follower of Jesus, changed his life, and he wrote the song Amazing Grace. And so then you see me, you see Laura. Who would have thought that I'd be on a screen with these people up here, right? That was kind of funny when I put that together. But this book has changed my life. Each and every adult leader in this room, this book has changed their lives and hundreds and millions of people all around the globe. This book is changing lives. And so if you tell me that this book is not trustworthy, then I'd say, why is it changing so many lives? This book God's word breathed out changes lives. And you know what? This book can change your life too if you're willing to let God change it. God wants to change your life. And if you want your life to change, it starts with reading God's word. Okay, and so I know I threw a lot of different reasons and stuff at you tonight. And again, we could have gone way more in depth and there's a lot more we could have covered but I hope you can begin to see some reasons why the Bible can be trusted. And so I want to kind of wrap up with this. If the Bible can be trusted, what does that mean for you? If the Bible can be trusted, what does that mean for you? Because if you say, okay, okay, Pastor Nick, I, I hear you. The Bible is trustworthy. It's inspired. It's God, God's breathed out word. I hear what you're saying. The question I want to ask you then to think about is, what does this book, being the breath of God, mean for you? And so here are a few application points that I want to leave you with. And I'm going to give you some time to talk about these in your small groups. Here are a few points that you can walk away with, okay? Scripture is authoritative and true. Scripture is alive and active. Scripture is forever Scripture is worthy of delight, and Scripture is to be lived out. And so if the Bible is trustworthy, then you know what? The Bible should lead our lives. If the Bible is truly God's breathed out word, it's alive and active, changing your life, changing my life daily, and it can change yours. If the Bible is true and trustworthy, that means it's forever if the Bible is true and trustworthy, it means it brings joy. It brings delight. And you know what? If this book is truly God's word, if it's breathed out by God, then maybe we should consider actually living out 
what it says. And so again, you'll have some more time to process these in small groups, but I want you to think about this. Can you trust the Bible? I hope that you leave here tonight and say yes. But yes, that's a great thing to leave with, but I want you to think about if the Bible is trustworthy, then how does it change your life? Well, let me pray for you guys. God, thank you so much for this time tonight to be able to dig into your word. God, I pray that we would trust you and your word, that it would be a firm foundation on our lives. God, I pray that you would help each and every student here to be open to the ways that this book would change their lives. Because it's not just simply a book. It is your revelation to mankind. It's your words. It is breathed out. The words, every single word in this book is from your mouth. And so may this change our lives because that's what you desire to do. So as we spend time discussing this a little more, may it continue to change our lives deeply. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so again,